welcome you guys. Great to be with you guys this morning. Um, I don't know what Kevin's talking about. There's like 16 bulletins up here. Here's another one. Um, uh, it's been uh, it's been a great privilege. Oh, you weren't even in here for my joke, Kevin. It's, there's bulletins all over this thing. Man, those papers on the ground really do bug me, though, as an anal person. I'm, I almost want to pick them up, but I'm going to leave them. Um, but it, it's, been, uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, planting this church and being a part of what God's doing. And, and the, uh, the transition has just gone so well. And I attribute that to prayer and, and to God uh, just being the one who has been at the very center of this entire process uh, from the very beginning. And our leadership has just done such an amazing job and and just really being um, not paranoid and not afraid and and not running around, uh, getting everybody worried. And and you guys have followed their leadership. And it's been just an amazing uh, thing to see. So... I hope you guys are praying, uh, praying for uh, Rory and Lindsay and their family and, and, and their transition here and praying for the leadership and praying for Andrea and I and our family uh, as we transition. And um, it's, it's a difficult uh, time for us. It, it really is. And so I appreciate your guys' prayers. And uh, we know that the Lord is calling us, but that uh, just like with Nehemiah, which it's interesting that Brandy had that on her heart because that's exactly where we're going to be this morning. Um, but just like with Nehemiah, just because he was called didn't make the task any easier. It, it was a difficult thing that God had called him to do. And sometimes the very thing that God calls you to do will be the hardest thing you've ever done. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to be like this arduous effort on your part. But it takes sacrifice and it takes cutting away of your flesh and, and cutting away of your pride and, and your ego and all kinds of other things that have to go in order for God's purposes to be worked in you. And whenever you transition, whenever you change, it's kind of like moving. You know when you move the refrigerator and you find the dead mice and you know the, just all kinds of rotten food and kids' toys that have rolled back there that you didn't see for five years and it's like, whoa, you know, if this fridge hadn't been moved, you would never have seen all that stuff. And when you start moving toward the, the will of God and you transition and you start doing different things, the Lord begins to uncover some things in your life that aren't all that pretty oftentimes. And it, it's kind of the same principle as moving. It's good to move every four or five years because you get rid of a lot of stuff. Like when you live in a house, as long as Andrea and I have lived in our house, there is stuff that is in boxes that I don't even know where it came from. I, it's like, why do we have dried flowers from like Andrea's, you know, Catholic, uh, whatever it was, you know, it, it, it's like, what in the world? <laughs> why do we have this stuff? I've got Bible college binders and papers and that I haven't looked at in years. Pretty sure if I haven't looked at this in eight or nine years, I'm never going to look at it. So it probably should go in the trash. 
But I look at it, I'm like, oh, man, I put all kinds of time and effort. I'm not going to get rid of this stuff. But moving toward God's will does that for you as well. When, When you just surrender your life and he begins to uncover things and you begin to look in boxes you hadn't looked in before, and, and you're going, you know what? This needs to go. Man, this, this, this has got to get cleaned up. What in the world? Why are there dead mice here, you know? This has got to get taken care of. And, and that uh, will happen in your life too. And it's exactly what I want to talk about this morning uh, as we have just been in the Gospel of Luke for the last nine months and been talking about the mission of God. And talking about the fact that our God is a missionary God who stepped out of heaven. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he sacrificed everything for us. That's what missions is all about. It's about sacrifice. When you're on mission with God, it's going to cost you something. And that's what God is calling us to. And he set the example through Jesus who set aside all of his divine privileges when he came to this earth. He didn't set aside his divinity, but he set aside all of his divine privileges. And he said, I am coming to you, giving of myself as a sacrifice for you. And it's exactly what he called Nehemiah to. There was a huge need that Nehemiah became aware of, and Nehemiah said, hey, I'm not going to wait for somebody else. I'm going to go do it myself. And it's really a demonstration of the heart of God as we looked at a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 15. Rory's going to pick it up in chapter 16, but I'm going to sort of leave it there. And we're going to do Nehemiah 1 this morning and then Acts chapter 20 next week for my farewell as Paul gave his farewell to the Ephesian elders But in Luke 15, where we left off, we really see the heart of God. The heart of God for the lost. The the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost coin. The parable of the lost sons. And we see that God has a heart for the lost, for the broken. Because He created this world and He said it was good. He looked at the world and He said it was good. And when God says something's good, that means it's good. It was good. And now, we are living in a state of fallenness because of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God. Don't blame them. If it was you, you would have done the same thing. It's just like, insert your name here. That's you. It's me. And their sin had been passed on, has been passed on to each one of us. And we live in a fallen world. And it's not good. But God is making it good through His plan of redemption. He was building up to it all the way to the cross where He finished His plan there at the cross where Jesus said, it is finished. But it's not ultimately done yet because now we're waiting on God to fully finish the work by completing His plan of redemption, by setting up His kingdom on the world, and in the world. And we're a part of that process. It's been completed in, in that the work is done, but God hasn't claimed it yet. It's still kind of in process 
of happening. And we're a part of that. We're part of his plan of redemption. Where ultimately he's going to come back and he's going to set up his kingdom. And the Bible says in Revelation 21 that he will make all things new. Not only is he going to restore it to the way it was in the garden, but he's going to make it better than that. And that's the mission that you and I are on. But when we look at the state of our world, we see that there are huge needs. We see that we are living in the state of absolute fallenness and brokenness and lostness and hopelessness. And what does that do to you? Well, we're going to see what it did to Nehemiah. It did to Nehemiah exactly what it did to Jesus. It compelled him to do something about it. Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, Nehemiah means the comfort of God, the God who comforts, which is exactly what Nehemiah brought to his people. He became a vessel through which comfort came to the people. Nehemiah is writing this in the first person, and he says, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, which is really like late fall, early winter, late November, early December is, is the time frame. In the 20th year, as I was in Shushan or Susa, the citadel, which is the place where Persian kings went to vacation. So this is the 20th year of the Persian king Artaxerxes. It would have been 445 BC that Nehemiah is writing. They're on vacation. Nehemiah is with the king in the vacation spot, Shushan. They're in modern day Iran. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. That means he was the king's right-hand man. He was more than a butler. He was an advisor, a counselor. He was a big wig in this city, in this nation, in this culture. And it says that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And so they come back now from Babylon. And if you understand biblical history, you understand that Israel was ransacked by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Completely destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar came in there and just wiped them out. Totally destroyed them. They were a divided nation After the reign of Solomon, the son of David, they divided into two nations. The two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, and the ten tribes to the north. And they were divided, and because of their division, and because of their rebellion toward God, they were weak, and they were susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. And it's exactly what happened. The Babylonians came in, the Assyrians had already attacked the north and wiped them out. But now the Babylonians came in and they wiped out the southern part of Israel. And they totally destroyed Jerusalem. They knocked down the walls. They lit it on fire and they destroyed the temple. And it lay in ruins for about 70 years, which was prophesied in Jeremiah. But then the Persians took over rulership 
they sacked Babylon and they became the overseers of Israel and the Jewish people. And the Persians were smarter than the Babylonians and the Persians realized, you know what, we've got this this land here that really could be like a buffer and it would be a lot smarter if we had an ally nation there rather than just barren land that our enemies can come through and attack us. And so they sent back under the leadership of men like Ezra, they sent back people to begin to rebuild Israel. And they started with the temple because in their mind, if we don't have a place to worship God and we don't have a place where God's presence exists, then we don't even want to be here. So they began to work to build the temple, but then they got enemy nations beginning to give them a lot of difficulty and a lot of attacks against what they were doing, and so they just quit building the temple. They just said, ah, this isn't worth it, and they began to build their own homes, and the temple lay in ruins, and that's when Haggai came on the scene, and he just prophesied, look, you guys need to get back to business. you got a temple to build. There's walls that are laying in ruins. The city is completely destroyed. Sixteen years had gone by, and they really hadn't done a thing. And so there's this rebuilding process that's happening, but years are going by without really anything being accomplished. And so these men come back from Jerusalem, from this city and this nation that's laying in ruins, and there's still people in Babylon under Persian rule, Nehemiah being one of them. They're still serving they're still doing their thing, and they're, they're kind of hearing about news. Man, it's, stuff's starting to happen over there in our homeland. And most of those people had never even been there. It's 80, 90 years. And he's hearing the news, and he's becoming overwhelmed with what he hears. It says, they, they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And so the news that he hears, the report that he's given is not good. He wanted to hear, man, the wall's rebuilt, the gates are back on, the temple's going up. Things are happening, but that's not what he hears. What he hears is, yeah, the wall's still in ruins. The gates are on fire. The place is trashed. And the people, they're not really doing a whole lot about it because they're afraid of the enemy nations around them. And Nehemiah, understanding military strategy, understands that this wall has got to get built. These gates have got to be put on in order for us to protect ourselves, in order for us to be the people that God is calling us to be to build this city We've got to do this. And he becomes aware of the overwhelming need. He's given this report. You guys, on a daily basis, we're faced with an overwhelming need. We turn on the news and we see just report after report of sin and idolatry and the results thereof. 
We see murder and rape and child abuse and theft and poverty and unemployment and schools having to budget crunch and cutting the legs out from underneath our children. And it, it burdens us. And it, and it hurts us. And we log on to our favorite news sites on the internet and we're just bombarded with constant need. And you look around. You look around even a city like Prineville and you see overwhelming need. You understand that we live in one of the most unchurched parts of the world. Not just of the United States, but of the world. There's parts of communist China that have more evangelicals than the Northwest. You look at cities like Seattle and Portland, which are the the most unreached cities in the United States, and that spills forth into the suburban areas in the Northwest and the rural areas in the Northwest. As go the cities, so go the suburban areas and the rural areas. And we see, even in a town like Prineville, where people drive through and they think, man, this is like Mayberry. I mean, I bet you everybody here goes to church. And then you look at the facts, and you see that actually less than 10% of our city is churched. And you see that the, the teen pregnancy rate is consistently the highest in the state. You see that the drug abuse rate is consistently the highest in the state. That meth use is out of control. You you look right now and you see that one out of every four people in our county is unemployed. That the, the, the rate of people living under the poverty level is increasing. Exponentially. That the rate in which people are applying for government help can't be met by the funds that are there. We are living in a time and in a city that has great needs, you guys. And what does that do to you? What does that do to you when you think about the masses of people in the Northwest, right here in Crook County? What does that do to you? When you see the masses of people that need Jesus. See, Nehemiah, his need was a little different. He saw a great need. It was a need that they needed to meet. But we have needs as well. We get reports as well that our city is still in ruins. That our culture is in chaos that our neighbors are dying and going to hell. And what does that do to us? When you go to big events here, maybe you don't go to huge events like they have in Portland or Seattle where you, where you can see like 50,000 people in one place, but if you've ever gone to that, then you know what I mean. If you've been to a, a professional sporting event, but even in some of the, the smaller events like here in Prineville, the the Crooked River Roundup, where there's a few thousand people gathered in one place, and you look across the sea of people, what does that do to you when you realize that probably 80 to 90% of those people are dying and going to hell? What does that do to you? 
It ought to do to us what it did to Nehemiah, which was bring him to a place of absolute brokenness. You say, well, yeah, I'd probably be broken too if I got news that my city was on fire and that everything was in chaos. We need to think about something, though. There's potentially two things that Nehemiah may have been grieving over. One would have been the initial ransacking of Jerusalem, which happened in 586 B.C. This is the 20th year of Artaxerxes, 45 B.C. I'm not a math scholar, but that's 141 years. 141 years and Nehemiah is broken over it? I mean, I didn't go to school that long ago, but I remember when I heard about like Abraham Lincoln dying, I didn't cry. It's like that happened a long time ago. 140 years ago and you're crying over it? It's like that's a little late, bro. I don't know what you're going to do now. The Civil War, when was the last time the Civil War broke your heart? I can't believe we were shooting at each other. It just doesn't happen. But see, this wasn't about Nehemiah taking something old and being broken in an old way. This was Nehemiah taking old news and being broken in a new way. Well, maybe it wasn't 141 years ago that he was mourning and grieving over, maybe it was potentially 12 years previous to that. That would have been about the time that Ezra was there and was having difficulty and was trying to lead these people to rebuild the wall and the city and the temple, and it wasn't happening. And these guys are coming back saying, man, nothing's going on over here. Maybe it was that, but even 12 years ago. That, that's about 1997 Maybe the time where Oklahoma City got blown up. You remember that crazy guy drove into the Capitol building, blew it up? I mean, I don't weep over that too often. I mean, even Hurricane Katrina was just a few years ago, and I don't remember really ever weeping over that. And, and so, even if it's not 141 years ago and it's 12 years ago, Nehemiah's taking something that was old news. And it's breaking him in a new way. You guys, the lostness and the brokenness and the hurt and the hopelessness that exists in our culture isn't new. We know about it. I mean, you don't have to live in this world very long to know it's screwed up. You don't have to have a degree even. You just look outside. You know this world's jacked up. You know it. Well, what does that do to you? For a lot of Christians, it makes them print more books, make some more t-shirts, cut some more Christian albums, retreat more, start more Christian schools. And what we're finding is that's not working. We're not impacting our culture because all that we're doing is creating a subculture. Because the only people that buy those shirts and those books and go to those schools typically are people that already believe that way. What we need to do is engage the culture in the needs that exist there rather than retreating from it. You see, anybody can run away from a problem, but Nehemiah says, I'm going to hit it head on. I'm going to go, even though 
I don't know how I'm going to do it. If you continue to read in Nehemiah, this was a difficult task that he had before him just to get out of the position that he was in as the cupbearer wasn't real easy. And so the, the report that he hears brings him to, first of all, an emotional response. Look at verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And so Nehemiah hears some old news. Makes us go like, dude, a little late. It breaks his heart. Somehow, some way, this news, this report, the brokenness and the hopelessness of the situation just absolutely overwhelms him. And this isn't like a little tear, you know, this isn't crocodile tears. This is a guy who weeps and mourns for many days. This isn't like crying over a beer commercial. My dad used to always say my mom would cry over a beer commercial. It's just kind of how ladies are a lot of times. You know, just sort of cry over things that really aren't that significant. And then like five minutes later, you know, we're laughing or joking around or whatever. So it's really, it really didn't touch you that deeply. It really wasn't that monumental of an experience. But this is different. He sits down and he weeps and mourns for many days. It just absolutely rocked his world. So there was an emotional response. And you guys, there's nothing wrong with that. When you look at the needs of this world, when you see multitudes of people who are dying and going to hell, it should break you. That should be keeping us up at night. But too often what keeps us up at night are selfish pursuits. is personal and self-centered worries of how I'm going to pay my bills. And where am I going to get my next paycheck from, and and all of those kinds of things which we should be concerned with, but that shouldn't be consuming us. That shouldn't be what is making us mourn and weep. What Nehemiah is mourning and weeping about is nothing personal. He had a great job. He was secure. He was the right-hand man to the king. He could have just been like, who the heck cares about those people? Whoop-tee-doo, I'm good to go, man. My family's set. Sorry for you, dude. Wish you were me. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he's going to step out of that position. He's going to sacrifice himself, much like Jesus did. You see, Jesus could have looked at our condition and said, got yourself there, too bad for you. If you'd have just did what I said from the beginning, we wouldn't be in this problem. It's too bad. See you in hell. But Jesus came to our rescue, which is exactly what Nehemiah does. Jesus' heart broke as he sat upon the hill and he looked at Jerusalem. You remember that. And he said, my heart breaks for you. I long to gather you. 
like a hen gathers her chicks. Jesus continually was broken over the needs of the people. He said they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's the heart of Jesus. And that ought to be our heart. You see, there's, there's a disconnect, you guys, as Christians. If we say we love God, but don't care about people. John said it like this. He said, how can you say you love God whom you've never seen, and yet not love people who you're staring at in the face? How can you do that? You can't. You can't do it. How can we say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and yet not have the number one attribute as part of our life that Jesus had, which was to be a missionary? Oh, you mean I've got to board a plane and get a passport and go across the world? No, you don't. You're a missionary right here. Because our God is a missionary God. He's on mission to bring redemption. And is that your heart? Does your heart break like Jesus' heart broke? Does our heart break over the needs of people the way Jesus' did? If it doesn't, we have to say, am I really a follower of him? Am I really that close to Jesus? Because the things that matter to Jesus don't really matter to me. And the things that don't really matter to Jesus consume my life. And we have to step back and say, what were Jesus' priorities and what are my priorities? Jesus' priorities were people and needs and the brokenness of humanity. And he gave everything for that. And now we're living with the knowledge of the gospel, with Jesus Christ supposedly being the Lord of our life, with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we're living for the mundane, for the mediocre, for the temporal. We're going after idols. We're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Is that why Jesus came? Did Jesus simply come so that You could have knowledge of him. That's right. (laughs) At least somebody's paying attention. (laughs) Is that why Jesus came? Absolutely not. Did he come so that you could just plant your butt in a seat once a week? And sing a few songs? And hear a message that you really never intend to do anything with? And I mean, I, I got to be honest, I love to hear people say, man, that was a great message. I, I've got an ego. I'm, I'm prideful as anybody else. I love to hear that. But you know what? In the back of my mind, I often think, what do you mean by that? Because it's only a good message if you do something with it. Th- this isn't about articulating things in a fashion that tickles your ears and and makes you think, oh, isn't this fun? This is bloody, man. This is sacrifice. This is reckless abandon. This isn't a club. 
This isn't, let's get together and tell each other how great we are. Man, this is absolute death to self. And see, that's the problem with the church. And it's the problem with our culture. See, we look at the fact that the city we live in is totally jacked up and we blame it on the devil and we blame it on the world and we blame it on all the drug addicts and the alcoholics and the perverts. And that's what we blame it on. But you know where we ought to be looking first is at our own hearts. Lord, how am I contributing to this problem? Because you've given me the greatest message in the world that can change lives. And yet we're not doing crap. What are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to do, Jesus? What sins are you calling me to repent of? Not the dude down the street that beats his wife. Yeah, that's a problem. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is why isn't the church reaching the culture more? Why aren't we engaging it? That's what we got to find out. That's what Nehemiah wanted to find out. That's why he sat down and he wept and he's thinking to himself, God, why in 141 years have we not accomplished more than this? And it broke him in a new way, in a way that it never had before. That's what God wants to do in you. The same thing he did in Nehemiah. He wants to break you in a new way for you to say, God, it isn't the culture, it's not society, it's me. Lord, how am I contributing to this problem? And it wasn't just an emotional response because that's not good enough. See, just to come here, you guys, today and And just to think, oh man, yeah, that's right, that's good. And maybe shed a tear or be moved. That's good and I want you to to have that happen. I really do. But that's not enough. If we just leave here and la-ti-da-ti-da and go back about our business, then nothing will change. It's got to impact us more than just emotionally. The emotions have to drive us to real, substantial, robust change. That's what he's calling us to. And he will do it. This isn't pie in the sky. This can happen just like it did with Nehemiah. And this emotional response turned into spiritual response. He's weeping, he's mourning, and then he begins to fast and pray. See, he doesn't just shoot right out and start to make change. He doesn't grab his sword and his trowel and run out there. He knows. He's got a huge task in front of him. First of all, he's got to get out of the position he's in. And that's not something that was easy to do. The the cupbearer was like the right-hand man. He knew too much. A smart king wouldn't just let the cupbearer go. Hey, go ahead. I mean, he was like way too valuable. He knew too much. He, He was given all the king's secrets. You know, it's like your accountant. 
You, you know, you just don't want to let them go. They know too much. That's why Nehemiah is set to prayer and to fasting. And that's why in chapter 2, when he goes to Artaxerxes with a ridiculous request to be let go of his position to go and help rebuild a wall. I mean, if I'm Artaxerxes, I'm thinking, dude, there's all kinds of construction dudes. Have one of them do it. I need you here. But because of God's leading, Artaxerxes let him go almost like it was no big deal. Go for it. Serious? That's because Nehemiah prays for like four or five months about it. And he seeks the Lord. And so you guys, take the emotional response, the brokenness that you feel, which is good, and we ought to feel that. But then begin to set about on a spiritual response. Where you begin to pray and to seek God and to fast and to say, Lord, there are a bunch of needs out there, a myriad of needs. I mean, just in my neighborhood, just in my neighbor's house, there's four or five people. There's huge needs. Lord, how am I going to reach and meet all these needs? And see, if we just go out like a shotgun, we won't be very effective. But God has gifted you in a certain and specific way, and he wants to use you in a certain and specific way. And you have to hear from him. And man, it burdens me. I talk to many of you, and you've, you've been walking with the Lord for years, and you don't know how it is that God wants to use you. And you guys, it shouldn't be that. The Lord has given you gifts and callings. He's given you your personality because he wants to use you in it. Don't try to be somebody else. He's... He's put you in the place that you work because he wants to use you there. Be content in that. He's given you the skill set that you have because he wants to use you in that. He's given you your children because he wants you to lead them to Jesus. And so rather than thinking about all the multitudes of needs, begin to just seek God and ask Him, Lord, how do you want me to meet this one need that you're putting in front of me today? See, because while we're driving around weeping and crying over all the needs and complaining about the way that our culture is, we're passing all kinds of people who are just absolutely devastated by this world. And we're going into the bank and... We're doing our thing and we're meeting a, a, a woman there who is devastated. We're going to the store and we're checking out and, and there's a lady or a guy there checking us out or helping us out who's absolutely hopeless and helpless. And then we take our kids to the Little League game and we're sitting next to four or five other parents who are in need of gospel truth. And we're thinking about, oh man, there's so many needs, there's so much going on, how am I going to do all this? And God's saying, it's right next to you. It's right there. I want to use you right there. But we have to begin to pray and to fast and to seek Him and quit being so selfish with our time and our talents and our treasures. 
Man, you guys, it astounds me how selfish Christians can be. With our time. I I don't have time for that. But the same guy has time to play multiple rounds of golf or hunt every weekend, fish. The same gal doesn't have time, but she's got time to sit on the computer and play Facebook games for four hours a night. I mean, we got to be honest with ourselves. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip. I'm just trying to be real because it's me too. I use the same excuses. Oh, I don't really have time. What that means is I don't care. I don't want to do it. And it's because we're not broken. I don't have the money. You guys, God's not asking you to give every dollar you have. He's asking you to give sacrificially. And for all of us, that's different. That might be ten bucks. It might be a thousand. It might be ten thousand. It, it's different for all of us because we're in different places. But we need to be giving sacrificially because we serve a sacrificial God. How in the world can I say I'm a lover of Jesus if I'm not willing to give of my time? He gave of his time. If I'm not willing to give of my talents, he gave of his talents. He set his divine privileges aside. If I'm not willing to give of my treasure, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that he who was rich became poor for our sakes that we might become rich in him. How in the world, you guys, can I say I'm a follower of Jesus if I'm not sacrificing in those areas? We can't. Your confession of Christ is empty at that point. It's empty and it's vain and it's offensive to God. You cannot call yourself a Christian and not live a sacrificial life. It's absolutely duplicitous. It's a disconnect. You see, even in a church this size, 150, 200 adults, I've said it from the very beginning. When we planted this church, we can change this city right now. But you know what's stopping us? Selfishness. That's what it is. It's selfishness. It's consumerism. It's consuming the church just like you do any other product. What's in it for me? You guys, if we, if 20 of you will surrender it all, will sacrifice for him, will lay it down, change this city. A few uneducated fishermen totally revolutionized Jerusalem. Why? Because they understood the gospel. Because they understood sacrifice. Because they gave everything they had for the use of the kingdom. And because they said, we're not going to fear man. We fear God and him alone.
You see, the needs, you guys, and the, the overwhelming results of our sin that we see in society is not our problem. Our problem is Christians who don't live like Christ. Our problem is that with our mouth we confess Him, but with our actions we deny Him. Our problem is is that maybe we're willing to throw a few bucks into the offering box, but we're not willing to give of our time. Maybe we're willing to give of our time, but there's no way I'm ever inviting anybody over to my house. This is my house. I'm never going to let you borrow my car. You think I'm going to let my boat go up to family camp? You're out of your mind. That's my boat. You think I'm going to sacrifice for people that I don't know? Most of you, most of us aren't even willing to sacrifice for our families. Let alone strangers. And meanwhile, God sits up there and says, this is my church? These are the people that claim to, to love and serve and follow me? There's no similarity to me. That grieves him. Guys, this isn't hard. We don't need more theology, although learn as much as you can. We don't need more books. We don't need more seminars. We don't need more Christian schools or Christian T-shirts or Christian bumper stickers or Christian movies or Christian CDs. We don't need any of that. What we need is Christians who live like Jesus. Not just in terms of their lifestyle and morals, but in terms of living sacrificially, giving it all for the sake of the gospel. Some of you spend more on your dogs and your cats and your goldfish than you do on the gospel. And that is absolutely atrocious. Most of us spend more money on our kids and sending them to camps and swimming lessons and any number of other activities than we would ever dream of spending on the kingdom and on gospel work. Well, man, if I don't send my kids to every single thing, that they're not going to have the life that I dream for them to have. I want them to have all the things I didn't have. You guys, what they need more than anything else is to be on mission and to see you on mission. That'll change their life. PlayStation 3 a new car, another camp. That won't change their life. It might for a day, but it won't for the long haul. The greatest gift that you can give to your children, the greatest gift that I can give to my children is to say, look, we love Jesus. Jesus is a sacrificial God. 
And that means we're going to sacrifice. And that means you may not have everything that all the other kids have. But here's why. It's not because I don't love you. It's not because I don't want to get that for you. It's because we're going to give it to somebody else. Because we're going to give it away. And this house, it doesn't belong to us. And this money, it's his. And those things you have, they're not yours. And you give that legacy to your kids, you guys. That's the greatest legacy that you could ever give them. Nehemiah understood that. Nehemiah had an emotional response. He had a spiritual response. The spiritual response brought him to prayer and fasting. And this prayer tells us a lot about Nehemiah. See, you can learn a lot about people by their prayers. And I'm not one to analyze and judge people based on how they pray. And I'm not one to say that if we don't articulate things just right, that we're not praying rightly or that God doesn't hear us. No, God hears our hearts. But when you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you're maturing in your faith and this is getting into you, His Word is penetrating your heart, you begin to pray differently. It, it just begins to change everything. And certainly prayer is one of those things. Because now you're not so concerned with material stuff and you're not praying for that. Now you're not so caught up in the temporal and you're not praying for those things. Now you're not so concerned with what your kids do for a living and, and that they meet all of your goals that you have for them, now your prayer for them is that they would love Jesus and be on fire for Him and be on mission for Him. And if that means they collect garbage for a living, then praise Him. If they're doing it for Jesus, then I'm stoked. See, it changes how we pray. How we pray for people, how we pray for ourselves. And Nehemiah's prayer begins with worship. He doesn't just launch into the need. He doesn't just launch into selfishness. He starts out with worship. And you guys, if we're going to make a difference in this culture, in this city, in this community, in this world, we have to be worshipers of God. He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. He starts with worship and adoration. And that's where our prayer should start. It should start by saying, Jesus, you are awesome and I'm not. Jesus, the world revolves around you, not me. You see, that's how Jesus started his prayer, that model prayer. And the disciples said, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, okay, something like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was worship to the Father. Understanding our place in the kingdom. That He's the King and we're not. You see, if we're going to be mightily and powerfully used, you guys, in this culture, then we have to be worshipers. Not just here on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, 
but worshipers with our whole life, which includes sacrificial giving. Worshippers with how we live, which includes our lifestyle and our morals. Worshippers and how we work and how we raise our kids in our marriages. It, it permeates everything we do. When we understand our relationship to the Father. Worship. And then it moves into confession in verses 6 and 7. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Not just they, but we. He's including himself in this confession. Both my father's house and I have sinned. He's repenting on behalf of the people. Most of these sins weren't his, but he was willing to confess them and to repent of them and to take them on himself, much like Jesus. The Bible tells us, who knew no sin was made to be sin with our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Nehemiah understood the heart of God, which isn't to blame it on somebody else or to just point out all the problems, but to say, God, how am I contributing to this? God, forgive me. Break me, God. I confess our sin to you, Lord. I take on the sin of the culture I live in. Lord, I've contributed to that. And there's confession. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. He says, look, we've, we've gone way off, Lord. God, forgive us. Lord, you gave us your law. You gave us commands through Moses. And we're not doing it. We're not doing it, Lord. And, it, and it's, it's like he was becoming aware of this. And it was breaking him. And he was becoming aware of his own contribution to this problem. That he was liable for it. And it was breaking his heart. His heart was bleeding. And his eyes were weeping. You guys, this morning, I want to give us an opportunity to ask God to search our hearts. To say, Lord, how have I contributed to this problem? How am I guilty, Lord? What do I need to confess to you? God, search me. Know me. Lord, forgive me for just looking out into the lost world and blaming all of our problems on them and losing sight of the fact that judgment begins at the household of faith. It begins with me, Jesus. And I confess that to you. Forgive me. And then he moves into remembrance. He says, remember, verse 8, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And Nehemiah was a man who prayed the word. He's praying this from Deuteronomy. He understood the word, and he was praying the word. And you guys, as you mature 
you'll begin to pray the word back to God. Because you understand that this is his word and he's passionate about it. And so why wouldn't we want to be praying it? Because these are the things he's passionate about. And there is something very powerful, you guys, when we begin to pray the things that God's already passionate about. I mean, let's face it. God wants us just to pray. And he'll take your selfish, immature prayers because he's a loving God. But man, there is something very powerful when you begin to pray the things that are already on God's heart. I mean, there, it, it's just like, hang on, man. Because he's going to blow your socks off. And that's what he does to Nehemiah. Nehemiah remembers, Lord, you said if we didn't follow you, if we didn't heed your commands, you were going to scatter us. There would be judgment. That's exactly what happened, right? He's like, man, the Lord's words come to pass. You know how that just hits you sometimes? Like, duh. The wages of sin is death, man. What am I doing? And it just hits Nehemiah. He's like, that's why we're scattered. That's why my people are all over the place. That's why our city is lying in ruins. And it's on fire. And it's destroyed. Because of our sin. And Lord, you said this is what would happen. But, and man, thank God for buts in the Bible. I don't say that to be cute. But there's some big butts in the Bible. And I mean, I like big butts because this is important. All these butts. I mean, he says, look, if you do this, your life's jacked up. But if you do this, I'll restore you. I mean, we ought to take all those butts and just circle them and say, thank you, Jesus, for the butts. Because if it wasn't for them we would be hopeless. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, just do them. Just do what I'm asking you to do. Though some of you were cast out, just like the people in our context today, they're cast out. Though some of you were cast out and you're hurting and you're destroyed, and you're devastated to the farthest part of the heavens. Yet I will gather them from there, and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That's the heart of God. He wants to go out and rescue the lost. Those who have totally screwed up their lives by not heeding his commands. But, if... They will repent if they will come back to me. If you will keep my commandments. Yeah, I know you haven't for like decades. But start today. If you'll do it today, I'll gather you. And look where he wants to gather them. To a chosen dwelling for my name. Today, it's called the church. He wants to gather them. To a city within a city. 
a safe place where his name is exalted, where his name is honored, where he's worshipped. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's called you to do, is to gather people, to be telling others about Jesus, and to be saying, yeah, I know you've totally messed your life up. I get that, but he's got something for you. If you'll turn to him today, he'll make all things new. And some of you need to do that. Some of you need to turn to Jesus. Yes, your life has been destroyed. It's been devastated. It's lying in ruins. But if you'll turn to him today, he'll restore you. He'll make all things new. He'll bring heaven to earth, which is what Jesus said is the will of the Father. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the heart of God. To bring heaven to earth, and he wants to do it through you and through me. And Nehemiah remembers that, and he prays that, and there's power in that, you guys, because our God is a God who wants to gather the lost and bring them to himself. And for whatever reason, I still haven't figured it out, he wants to use us to do it. I mean, there's got to be a better way. God could have created a computer that would have done a much better job. We can't even remember people's names. But for some reason, he wants to use us in all of our failings, in all of our failures, in all of our weaknesses, in our shortcomings, in our personality quirks. He wants to use us. He wants to use you. The question is, does the need burden you? Does it break you? And then Nehemiah goes from there to thanksgiving. He says, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He, he thanks God for those who do know him. And sometimes it's easy for us to get into this mindset like Elijah, like I'm the only one, Lord. I'm the only one at my high school that loves you. I'm the only one in my workplace that loves you. God, I'm the only one in my church that's on mission. Nobody wants to serve. And the Lord says, no, there's people. There's people whom I've redeemed by my great power, by my strong hand. You just worry about your own heart. I'll take care of the rest. And Nehemiah is reminded of that, and he thanks God for that. And then he goes to supplication, which is requests. And he says, oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. God, please listen to me and to the prayer of your servants. And so it wasn't just about Nehemiah. He wasn't a lone ranger. He wasn't in this for his glory. He was in this to glorify God. He wasn't in this to make his name famous, but to make God's name famous. And he said, Lord, Pay attention to my prayer and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. You see, there's something very powerful about the name of God because it's associated with the character of God. 
And that's what we're called to do, is to go and to make his name famous in this city. To gather people to a place where his name is honored and cherished and revered. Lord, be attentive to our prayer, to those who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. In other words, Lord, if you're calling me to go rebuild Jerusalem, then you better do something in the heart of the king, because I don't think he's just going to let me go. And you know what? As you think about the mission that God has for you. And you think, well, I don't know how that's going to work. I got kids to raise. I've got money to make. I've got a house to keep up. I mean, I've got lots of responsibilities. I can't handle one other thing. Go to prayer. And you ask the Lord, God, how can I be used right where I'm at? Maybe he's calling you to radical change. And you be open to that. It's not easy. But you say, God, I'm not living for this life. I'm living for you. And if you're calling me to that, then I'm not going to let anything or anyone get in the way. This morning, you guys, as the band comes up and we spend some time in worship and then in taking communion together, I want us to respond to what God has done in you through His Word this morning. As you think about the needs out there. Today you're going to leave this place and you're going to get smacked upside the head with a bunch of needs. There are children who are being sexually abused right under our nose. There are men who are going to lose their jobs tomorrow. There are women who are going to come home and find out that their husband left them. There are children with no fathers. There are teenage girls who are giving themselves away to filthy men sexually because that's the only way they feel like they have any hope in this life. Any meaning, any significance. You guys, that ought to break our hearts. What does that do to you? And what's stopping you from being a part of change? Not just noticing the problem, because that's not hard. But being a part of the change, we've got to repent. We've got to say, Jesus, my sin is contributing to the problem. God, take it. God, my selfishness is part of the problem. Because I'm living completely self-centered. I don't care about others. Whatever it is, whatever God is speaking to you, you confess that to Him. 
You repent today. You decide to change. You resolve in your heart today to be different so that you can make a difference. That's what he's calling us to do. He's got so much to do. That's what we're going to sing. He's the God of this city. He's the God of this nation. There's no one like our God. There's more that he wants to do, more that he wants to accomplish. And he wants to use you. And are you ready? Are you broken by the need? And then are you willing to say, use me, God. Here I am, like Isaiah. Send me, God. But what did Isaiah have to do first? He had to confess his sin. He had to recognize his own contribution to the problem and repent of it, just like Nehemiah. You guys, the work has been done. Salvation is available. The gospel is real. He wants you to receive it today. Not condemnation, but he wants you to receive forgiveness and wholeness. And he wants to set you on mission so that we can make a radical impact on this city right here. That's what he's calling you to do. Do you care? I hope you do. Let's stand together. You make this real in your own heart this morning.